0: Welcome to the Understanding Society podcast. I'm your host, Emma Victoria-Holton. The Understanding Society podcast series explores how scientists and policymakers use our data, along with commentary from specialists in the subjects we cover. On this episode, we're talking about work and money. Are there any long-term benefits to your health by working flexibly, or is it actually the reverse? Professor Tarani Chandola talks to me about how he used understanding society's biomarker data in his recent paper that covered flexible working, stress and the work-family conflict. And what about feeling financially secure or having job security? Does that have an impact on our long-term health? Later, we'll hear from Dr Claire Niedvich as she explains her findings on this from her recent paper. But first... Let's go to my chat with Professor Tarani Chandola. I joined him recently on campus at Manchester University and I started out by asking Tarani to tell me a little bit more about himself and his paper.
1: My name is Tarani Chandola. I'm a professor of medical sociology based at the University of Manchester. Uh, a medical sociologist is basically a, a sociologist that's interested in health and, and medical issues. I have had a very long interest in, um, in work and well-being, especially work-related stress. And that's how I came to do this, uh, this piece of research, uh, because I was very interested in seeing how whether flexible working arrangements could uh, have an impact on workers' stress levels.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm actually here on campus at Manchester University, yes. and it happens to be a sunny day. It's a very sunny day. It's a very sunny day indeed. And we have all the students out and people cutting grass in the background. So uh, you can really hear a sense of that on the podcast. Yes, <laughs> yes. So, why did you do this study? What was the need?
1: Well the need was because there's been quite a lot of debate about whether flexible working arrangements can be beneficial for workers on the one hand you might think it's a no-brainer you know if you can uh, work flexibly you think that that would be less stressful because you can sort of rearrange your the rest of your life around uh, your work times but then on the other hand there's been quite a lot of critique about whether Flexible work can lead to um, a lot of overspill between your work and family life and your work and home life, for example. Uh, we've got lots of examples of people taking home work, and so the, there's a blurred boundary between uh, home life and family life, which could be really stressful. And The other thing is to worry that the most common form of flexible work, which is when people work part-time, is resulting in ghettoization of work, particularly women's work, because uh, most part-time workers are women. And so th- these kinds of jobs can lead to a career that's not going anywhere, that's at a dead end. So flexible working may, may not be reducing uh, stress in the long term, may even be increasing your stress levels. So that's why um, I was particularly interested in seeing whether there's any correlation between people who who actually manage to work flexibly and their biological stress levels. So
0: let's just dive a little deeper into the paper. So how did you use these biomarkers?
1: Sure. The biomarkers come from the Understanding Society dataset, which is this remarkable uh, resource that's available for researchers around the world. It's basically following up a very large group of people, um, more than 50,000 people every year to see what happens to their health and well-being as well as documenting um, various aspects of their life, like their working life, their incomes, their housing conditions, and their relationships. So. From this very rich data source, they collected a range of biomarkers um, at one time point, and these were uh, biomarkers that were partly based on a blood collection, but also based on some body measurements like their height and weight, for example. So. We use these biomarkers um, as a way of understanding some of the chronic stress processes. It's really quite hard to collect biomarkers of stress from a survey like Understanding Society, mainly because the classic stress biomarkers like cortisol when you get stressed you you get a, a rush of cortisol but when the stress is over your cortisol levels come down so by the time you an interviewer interviews you for a survey you know you don't have that cortisol in your system anymore so it's really quite hard to collect the classic stress related biomarkers from a survey like understanding society however um, there are lots of other correlates of uh, stress biomarkers and these are the things that happen been collected in, in the study, Understanding Society. So in this particular piece of research, we used um, a number of these correlates of stress biomarkers. So some of them are related to the neuroendocrine system, which is basically your, your brain and, and and neurological functioning and how that reacts to, to stressful situations, as well as uh Things that are related to your uh, immune system and biomarkers that are related to your metabolic system. So we 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 looked at all of these um, biomarkers that are correlated with a chronic stress response, and basically, the longer you've been having these sort of high levels of stress hormones that were circulating in your system, the higher the levels of these other correlated stress biomarkers. So we're able to make use of these biomarkers and correlate their levels to what people were doing in in their workplace. And that's how we did the study.
0: Where exactly did this data come from and who? Who?
1: The data uh, follows up uh, a representative sample of adults living in private households, living in the UK. Um, it's a study that was started in 2009, but for this piece of research, we used uh, people that were followed up from 2010 to 2012. I was particularly interested in workers, so uh, not all of the people, not all of the 50,000 people were workers, but around 20,000 of them were were in work and were employees, And so we were interested in seeing uh, whether the employees part of the Understanding Society data set, whether within that group, those who were able to work flexibly, and by working flexibly, uh, it can be a range of things. I'll talk about that just coming up soon. But basically interesting, those employees who were able to work flexibly had lower levels of these chronic stress biomarkers. Flexible work can be many different things. Traditionally, there are three or four main kinds of flexible working arrangements. One is uh, sort of reduced hours flexible working arrangements, which is basically like part-time working. So when you need to uh, reduce your hours because of some other need at home, for example, and that's part-time working, and that's the main form of flexible working arrangements. But then there are other kinds, uh, such as uh, flexi-time, yeah, so you're you're rearranging your your working time, or you compress your working week. Um, so that's another form of flexible working arrangements where you don't cut down the number of hours that you do, but you you keep the same number of hours, but you rearrange it flexibly according to your needs. And the third kind is uh, a flex place. So you 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 work from home, or you work from another location that is more convenient to you. So you flex the place where you're working. And I guess the fourth kind is the very informal kind of flexible working arrangements where it's not a formal part of your contract, but you're able to negotiate with your employer or your manager a range of these options, whether reduced or flexi-time or flexi-place. So it's the informal kinds of flexible working arrangements. And these, um, the questions on these uh, flexible working arrangements were asked uh, you know, every two years in the Understanding Society data set. So we're able to follow up the same people to see what happens to their flexible working arrangements, as well as a whole range of other um, aspects of people's lives like you know, what other the other types of job conditions that they're working in and what are their household arrangements as well.
0: So let's just go to when you were analyzing this data what did you find were there any surprises?
1: There were surprises I, I was expecting uh, flexible working arrangements uh, the different kinds of flexible working arrangements to be correlated with lower levels of stress-related biomarkers and um to that extent only one kind was that's the reduced hours working you know that's largely working part-time that's what i was expecting but i was i was also expecting the other kinds where you know people working flexi time or people working uh, flex place where you you know work from working from home to be also correlated with uh, reduced stress levels and that wasn't the case um and so uh, it really looked as though um, that it was just the reduced hours component of flexible working arrangements that's correlated with low lower levels of chronic stress. And that was true for both men and women. Uh, the, the, I was expecting that to be more pertinent for women. But uh, actually, men who were uh, working reduced hours flexibly, they also had lower levels of chronic stress biomarkers.
0: So why do you think... There were such differences, like you were expecting didn't matter which area of flex you working, you thought there'd be lower cortisol levels, so why do you think there were differences?
1: I really think there's something in, in the notion that uh, working less could actually be beneficial for, you, for your stress levels. Uh, the one thing that, that uh, it's important to keep in mind is that these workers that I analyze are not part-time workers. So they're all working 30 hours a week or more. So, okay, some of them are working a lot more than 42 hours a week, but not not many. And most of the women are working at the 30 to 35 hour mark. But by no means are these uh, classic Part-time workers, where where they they're working um, less than thirty hours a week, so these are full-time workers. They're they're working largely full-time hours, uh, and yet at some point in in the recent past, they've been able to make use of working fewer hours than they usually do, uh, and that their job has allowed them to do that. I'm supposing that that's something arising from a need that they have, whether it's a family need that's enabling them to cope with uh so the reduced hours, flexible arrangements are enabling them to cope with this family stressor that they might be encountering
0: and also do you think you were saying about working from home that you can absolutely push it to the max you can take your work home with you did you see any direct correlation to that that perhaps you're actually working 50 hours a week essentially
1: yeah so um working hours is correlated with stress levels but it's it's generally in the in the direction yeah uh, if you, if you work more hours you have higher levels of this chronic stress biomarkers if you work fewer hours you have lower levels of these chronic stress related biomarkers so generally yes yeah, so long working hours is very much uh, correlated and other studies have shown is is very much a determinant of stress related biomarkers so working from home could really exacerbate that if people are taking home work and not able to take a break and that delineation between your work and family life you can't quite achieve that
0: so definitely working less hours is less stress and that was for men and women that's right yes but what about if you throw children into the mix if you're a a working mother for instance did you see any correlation
1: there? Yes. So um, that was another nice thing about the data set because we were able to examine not just work-related things in the data set, but also a range of family circumstances. I was particularly interested in the possibility of work-family conflict, uh, which largely arises when your sort of work and family demands are contradicting each other, are in conflict with each other. So I looked at the role of parents of children. And here I looked at just women because um, I was particularly interested when parents had two or more children because that can be quite tougher to juggle than if you just have one one child. And in the data set, it's not surprising to know that the main carer, if you're a family with, with two or more children, it's, it's mainly women. You know, so it's not... Very few men were the main care of um in a family where there are two or more children. So I looked at the women and to see whether um if the women were working in a job where they were had uh, to work full time hours as well as they had to care for two or more children. Was that correlated with high levels of these chronic stress biomarkers? And unsurprisingly, yes, it was. So women um, who were working full-time and also looking after two or more children had about um, 0.5 levels of this uh, chronic stress biomarker scale. It ranges from 0 to 11, and each unit, every one unit or one increase is basically an additional biomarker risk. Uh, score. So it's like you get a one if you have high blood pressure. You get another one if you've got diabetes. You get another one if you've got high cholesterol and so on and so forth. We've got 11 biomarkers, so the range goes from 0 to 11. So a a half-point increase, uh, which is basically the increase for for a woman who was uh, working full-time as well as looking after two more kids compared to other women in the data set who were also working full-time but didn't have any kids, that corresponds to uh, you know half an additional biomarker of risk for chronic stress.
0: That's quite a significant rise, really, yes, isn't it? Yes, yes. Yeah. And what about the age of the children?
1: Unfortunately, you know, trying to delve deeper into the data set uh, by looking at women who are caring for mainly younger children, it is possible, but the numbers become quite small then, I was looking after people who were the main carers for children up to the age of fifteen. That's quite a wide age range, but you know, you I would definitely expect these correlations to become even stronger if I were able to restrict analysis just to women, you know, looking after children under the age of six, for example.
0: We just briefly touched on the work family conflict. So just what are the consequences of this conflict?
1: The work-family conflict, as I said earlier, is when you've got work and family demands that are incompatible with each other. It's been shown uh, in lots of studies that that uh, is correlated with a whole range of of lower well-being measures. The things most of these well-being measures have been measured through self-reports. So you get asked things like how you're feeling and your subjective perceptions of your well-being. And that's correlated with, again, your subjective perceptions of your work-family conflict. And um, one of the criticisms of existing research is that, well, it might be that these correlations are being driven by a personality type. You know, if you're a kind of like a negative person who views everything negatively, you might report lots of conflict in your work and family life as well as lower well-being because you view everything ne- negatively. So that's why it's really interesting to look at biomarkers which are not directly related to your personality measures and see whether there's still a correlation between these stress-related biomarkers as well as work-family conflict. So it's really interesting to see that that does exist. So it's not just a an artifact. Uh, it's not just something else that is causing the work family conflict and your self-reported subjective well-being indicators it does really seem to be correlated with higher stress-related biomarkers
0: and just as we're moving completely differently well worldwide with gig economies a rise in self-employment part-time work i can just see this is just going to keep increasing so going forward what needs to change
1: Right now, in the, the legal situations, that all employees have a right to request their employers to work flexibly. Well, they have the right to request, but they don't have the right to get it. Yeah, so it, it really depends on the on whether it's a reasonable uh, request, and question of reasonable is up to the employer. And if not the employer, then it's up to sort of the uh, an employment tribunal or the law courts to decide. But still, as, a, as an employee, you can request um, to work flexibly. The law is not terrible, and there's some protection for employees. The trouble is not everybody is an employee. Uh, we, as, as you mentioned, the, the gig economy is increasing, and many workers in the gig economy are not protected by these uh, protections for the employees. So workers in the gig economy, usually they cannot uh, request flexible working. Part of working in the gig economy is because it's it's around your, your, you know, it is meant to be flexible working, but there are still other kinds of um, employment rights that, uh, employee rights that a lot of workers are not eligible for. So going forward, yeah, it would be interesting to see whether, you know, flexibility that a lot of gig economy workers have, whether that is reducing their stress levels or whether, you know, in the long term, are they stuck in certain kinds of jobs that, don't allow them to progress beyond and so in effect increasing their stress levels in in the long run because there's very little career progression for them so that's something I would be very interested in following up.
0: Well, Thank you Tarani. So just finally really if you were to go back and do this analysis again is there anything that you would have done differently?
1: Yeah, there was just so many things. <laughs> um, but one of them would be it would have been nice to have the classic uh, stress related biomarkers collected. I know it's very hard to collect cortisol and, and things in a survey, but there, there are newer ways of collecting stress related biomarkers so that we don't uh, have to rely, so that I, I wouldn't have had to rely on these uh, proxies or correlates of chronic stress reactions. That would be one thing. And, and the other thing um, I would have liked to have done is to explore more the, this question about the gig economy uh, and see whether gig economy workers are, are less stressed um, because you would expect them to be so, but what's happening to their well-being levels over the long term because the, the worry there is that a lot of them will get trapped in, in jobs that don't go w- without much career progression and so their stress levels could increase in the long term.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people would want to hear about those findings with there being such an increase. Excellent. Well, if people want to read your paper, is there any way of finding it?
1: Yes, um, the paper is open access. So um, if you find it on the Internet, that means you can read the entire paper, not just a, a summary of it. It's published in the journal Sociology. So if you go to your search engine like Google and just type in my name, Chandola, the words uh, flexible work and sociology, you know, the first hit will be, should be this paper. And you click on that hit, you'll be able to read the entire paper and all the analysis that I did, including all the supplementary analysis that I did.
0: Well, thank you, Chuan. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you for joining me today. Thank
1: you. Thank you very much.
0: That was Professor Tarani Chandola from Manchester University. Some of those findings were quite surprising and as the trend in flexible and remote working continues to grow, Tarani's paper really highlights the potential physical and mental harm this could do to the health of workers and their families over time. So what about financial security or job security? Does that have an impact on a person's long-term health? How do you even begin to analyse this by using biomarkers? Our reporter Alex Bennett joined research associate Dr Claire Niedvich at Glasgow University recently. Alex began by asking Claire to tell us a little bit more about her recent paper. We were
2: looking at the trajectories of economic security, so that means how financially safe people feel over time. And this was related to the relationship with a range of um, biomarkers. So we found that those who always felt financially insecure had worse biomarkers related to poor health compared to those who felt well off over time. And in particular, people's metabolic health appears to suffer more and they experience more inflammation. And this could potentially be due to stress directly impacting on biological systems or it could be due to people adopting adverse health behaviours such as not eating well or drinking more alcohol.
3: And you mentioned the biomarkers there. What were those biomarkers and how did you choose the data for this study? And why did you choose those specific points, such as the biomarkers?
2: We use data from the UK Household Longitudinal Study, which is also called Understanding Society. It's a large survey which questions households on a range of different topics, including their health and well-being and their income. And it's a great resource for research that combines social and biological data. So our study included around 6,500 people aged 25 to 59 years. During 2011, um, some nurses took blood samples from each participant. And these were analysed for a number of different biomarkers um, and combined with survey data from the previous survey waves. In terms of the biomarkers, So these were collected from the blood samples and certain biomarkers are related to poor health. So if we take CRP, which stands for C-reactive protein, it's a measure of inflammation throughout the body and it's produced by the liver. And it rises um, due to bacterial or viral infections and also chronic diseases. And it's also related to psychosocial stress.
3: So with those findings in mind what can or should now be done as a result of this paper's findings? Let's first look at it from the perspective of you man in the street. What would the average person, what could they or should they do with this new information in mind?
2: So if you think about people who are employed and they unfortunately become unemployed, um, which there's an increase obviously in unemployment during recessions and other times and hopefully not... Uh, due to Brexit. So people who move from employed to unemployed um, experience an increase in financial insecurity. So we looked at whether the people experiencing financial insecurity have worse outcomes compared to someone who remains in a secure position, so if they remain employed. This is taking into account their income as well, so does the change in feeling more insecure affect health outcomes? And we found that So metabolic health tends to get worse and inflammatory markers seem to be worse. So this puts them at risk of developing cardiovascular disease or having a heart attack.
3: So those would be the changes on an individual level, but do you think there are any implications for policy that this paper raises, anything that should change or should have more closer attention paid to it?
2: So our paper can be considered alongside a body of evidence that shows that experiencing financial insecurity is bad for health. So at a societal level, um, I think we could do much more to prevent people um, experiencing financial insecurity. So this could be by making sure people have stable jobs over time, making sure the welfare system, I guess, is there to pick up People, if they become unemployed, so there's a kind of security net there for them in terms of providing financial security so people have enough income to pay for the basic kind of things in life, such as good food, fruit and vegetables and things like that. The paper focuses on these
3: biomarkers and their effects on health. Is there an immediate consequence for having these changing levels of the biomarkers in your blood or is that something that accumulates and then further down the road you'll see health issues?
2: Yeah, so biomarkers are interesting because they are related to increased increased risk of poor health. So there wouldn't be an immediate effect observed apart from with CRP, which is a measure of inflammation. So it can demonstrate, really high levels can demonstrate that you you're suffering from infection. But you would expect... There to be a kind of cumulative effect of financial insecurity over time, which puts someone at increased risk of cardiovascular disease or having a heart attack. So, this could be over like five or 10 years. So, it's not in a, a kind of immediate effect.
3: Is this paper fitting into a larger landscape of other studies? Is this a continuation of something? Are there other studies that you look to when you're
2: preparing this one? There's a, a huge body of literature that shows. People who have a a lower income have poorer health. Lower wealth tend to have poorer health as well. So we know that outcomes like cardiovascular disease are increased among people on lower incomes, but we don't know why why this is. So we were interested in looking at potential kind of biological mechanisms underlying this. So it's adding to to that body of literature, but there isn't a, a great amount actually looking at biomarkers specifically. um, And this is mainly due to a lack of data overall.
3: And so does this point to, or is there a logical follow-on for new studies?
2: Yeah. So one limitation of our study was that we only had biomarker data at one time point. So ideally we'd want to look at changes in financial security and changes in biomarkers over time. So at the moment, we don't have anything planned in terms of research, but in an ideal world, we'd like to know if reducing financial insecurity directly affects the biomarkers. So we could collect data on biomarkers before and after a specific intervention. And one intervention could be um, providing people with a universal basic income. So that might be one mechanism to reduce people's feelings of financial insecurity. Do people have better health if they feel more secure. We could follow people up over time as well to see if the biomarkers change and also whether they're at a decreased risk of outcomes such as a heart attack if they've received a, a universal basic income.
3: And to get a little bit more into the specific terms, as I was making my way through the paper, it said that the three biomarkers, CRP, HDL, and GGT, were the ones that were found to have the closest links to these people's changes in financial security. What are those three biomarkers and what would it mean for a person if they're changing
2: in levels? The three biomarkers were CRP, HDL, cholesterol and GGT, um, so CRP, Stands for C reactive protein. It's a measure of inflammation throughout the body and is produced by the liver. So it rises due to infection and disease and also chronic stress. HDL cholesterol is involved in the delivery of low density lipoprotein to the liver where it's broken down. So more low density lipoprotein in blood is not good as it increases the risk of heart attacks and stroke. So if people have more HDL cholesterol, it's, it's thought to be good. GGT is, stands for gamma glutamyl transferase. So it's an enzyme produced by the liver and it's involved in breaking down toxins and drugs. So more GGT in the blood is actually a marker of um, how much alcohol people are drinking. So high values indicate liver damage.
3: If we have a look at these three biomarkers, how would they change alongside these changes in financial security? So if someone were to go from feeling relatively financially secure to financially insecure, what would happen to the three? Would they increase or decrease?
2: So we would expect, in terms of the measure of inflammation, so CRP, we find that it tends to be increased amongst those who are uh, more financially insecure In terms of HDL cholesterol, we found lower levels among people who were financially insecure. Higher levels are thought to be good, so that's in the the expected direction. In terms of uh, GGT, we used two different measures of financial insecurity. So on one measure, we didn't find any differences across the groups in terms of GGT, but Um, Using the measure of missed bill payments, we found that those who were kind of persistently insecure had higher levels of GGT. So that could indicate that people are, are maybe stressed if they're experiencing some financial insecurity and they maybe drink a bit more to kind of cope with that.
3: You mentioned the higher levels of missed bill payments as a measure for financial security how did you go about measuring financial security or insecurity and why did you choose the data points that you did?
2: So we used two different measures of um, economic or financial security. One measure was kind of more subjective, the feelings of financial strain. So people were asked how well they felt they were ma- managing financially. So they were asked to rate from like, living comfortably to finding it difficult Another measure of subjective financial strain was the missed bill payments. So people were asked um, whether they were behind in mortgage payments or bills or like council tax bills. And we kind of summed the number of missed bill payments um, up to kind of measure the extent of financial insecurity. Um, they're not ideal measures, but we're kind of limited by the data that, that was already collected by understanding society.
3: Were there any surprising findings from this study because for me when I was reading it I was quite surprised to see that the fear of losing a job can actually weigh on your health more than physically losing a job will. I find that quite surprising
2: yeah it's it's quite surprising so we controlled for income and employment status so we're trying to get at the bottom of people's feelings of insecurity So not just the kind of lack of income. I wasn't particularly surprised by the results, but um, what I did find really interesting was that we looked at measures of kidney function. And these didn't tend to vary across the economic groups. So we included these as a kind of falsification test. So we didn't expect them to change in terms of changing financial insecurity. In the short term, in a way, that maybe they would change over a longer time period. So... I suppose it's interesting that we kind of find what we we're expecting.
0: That was Claire Needvich speaking from Glasgow University. Thank you for joining us on this podcast. It's been fascinating to learn from both Tirani and Claire about how working hours, money, and job security can have such an impact on our long-term health and well-being. Thanks for listening to the Understanding Society podcast. For more information on the Understanding Society study, go to understandingsociety.ac.uk.